0: Welcome to Classical Ideas, this is Greg Soden. Magic, the medieval period, gender, and sexuality are all topics that have come up on this podcast throughout the years, but they mostly appear on the podcast separately. On this episode, each of these topics seem to have seamlessly combined in a wide-ranging conversation with medievalist Kirstie Francis from UCLA. Francis' dissertation project is called Queer Magic, Sodomy, Sin, and the Supernatural in the Later Middle Ages, and it discusses magic, gender, and sexuality in the Middle Ages and early English Renaissance from 1100 to 1600. This conversation traces Francis's path towards finding her academic trajectory, what it's like to be a medievalist, reading medieval magical spellbooks, translating work inside archives the teachings of canon law the concept of contra notorum and what is basically a hierarchy of sins that went quote-unquote against nature Kirsty francis is a writer editor and medievalist based in tucson and los angeles francis's works at the intersections between religion magic gender and sexuality is so interesting Francis is on Twitter at Kirstie Francis K-E-R-S-T-I-F-R-A-N-C-I-S, where she tweets about feminism, queerness, history, and much more. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Kersti Francis. Kersti Francis, welcome to Classical Ideas.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Well, this excited is to be here.
0: this is such a delight. I'm so glad that you're here, Kirsty. I'm really excited to have you. And to start off, I always ask my guests to sort of introduce yourself, however you see fit, so the audience has a sense of who you are, what you do, stuff like that.
1: Absolutely. So I'm Kirsty. I'm a PhD candidate in English at UCLA, and I study gay medieval magic. And what that means basically is I look at the way that medieval people wrote, thought, talked about, and imagined magical practices from the realm of like real life right like people actively trying to write magical handbooks to the literature of the middle ages and i specifically focus on like the late middle ages so looking at like stories about king arthur or other medieval romances um or allegories that use magic in some way and then i compare this work on magic to medieval understandings of gender and sexuality and to me, I I see a very clear connection between the way that people medieval people talked about magic and used magic and the way they experimented with what we would consider today non-normative performances or mm. embodiments of gender and sexuality. So
0: that's me. Awesome. Well, I want to trace that journey a little bit because I know that you're in English, the English Mm -hmm. department, usually I focus on religion on this podcast, but you have so much religion woven throughout what you do. So I feel like you're sort of a pretty wide ranging scholar here. So Mm -hmm. I know you're at UCLA for English and that Mm -hmm. you're hugely involved in medieval studies, history, Mm -hmm. religion, magic. And you. so like your toes seem to be in many different waters, you know, and I'm curious about where those interests are come from is there like a way that you can help me trace your academic path like for when you started to get into this as a thinker and a scholar and like what what sent you down these paths with these several different areas that you that you seamlessly seem to work in
1: oh thank you um It honestly started in my undergrad. I went to this small women's college called Bryn Mawr out in Philadelphia. Oh, cool. And yeah, shout out to Bryn Mawr. Um, And one semester I was double majoring there. I double majored in English and medieval Renaissance studies because I knew that I wanted to be interested in that funky literature in some way. I had taken some classes. And so one semester for that double major, I also was minoring in gender and sexuality studies. So I had to take a senior like a upper level history class and I took that at the same time I took a gender and sexuality sort of methodology seminar and the history class I was very fortunate that my advisor um an undergrad designed a dark arts medieval magic class
0: sweet nice
1: and before that point you know I had been someone who like I like Harry Potter you know I like magic (laughs) and that sort of stuff but I haven't been someone who I didn't realize that magic could be like a course of study. And yeah. that class kind of blew my mind because I learned all of a sudden that, you know, today we think of magic as like something that's not real, something that's imaginary. But for medieval people, it was a concrete phenomenon that they sought to understand. And having to shift my own mentality was really useful, but also really exciting to kind of see these new pathways. And since I was taking that at the same time as a gender and sexuality methodology class, I kept noticing the conversations we were having in the magic class and in the gen sex class were the same. They were all about nature Mm. and whether something is natural or unnatural. Mm. And I am a queer scholar. I grew up um, kind of grappling with my sexuality and figuring out, you know, that aspect of myself. And I also grew up in the rural South where Southern Baptist culture was very strong. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times that same discourse I knew in modernity, right? This question of like, natural, unnatural sexuality had been something I was working through with religious concepts. And so as I did this work, um, I realized that there are these crazy parallels going on in the discourse that we used, And I was wondering if that was just a superficial connection or if there was something deeper. And so I started with a senior thesis in undergrad that kind of scratched the surface and that became the proposal for what was my graduation or my graduate school applications and what I'm now working on as my dissertation project is kind of seeing the resonances of those discourses and tracing them back to the, basically what I've uncovered, the medieval church. That is where um, the connections are made most obviously between these two seemingly very desperate contexts and conversations.
0: What made you wanna focus on the medieval period specifically like tell me what draws you to this time period
1: so I will say that I would I did not intend to be a medievalist even though I double majored in medieval renaissance studies I intended to be a renaissance person and I just needed to fill classes with medieval spaces right I didn't have enough classes to do a renaissance major and yet in so I started taking those classes and I met an amazing advisor um who Opened my eyes to the weird delight of medieval literature, and I hadn't gone to a high school where we read Chaucer. It was just texts that I had never encountered before, mm-hmm. and so reading medieval literature and reading medieval writing in general, it kind of reminds me of looking at our own time through a funhouse mirror. It's you know, people are still people; they're still driven by the same anxieties, the same pressures. Um, even though it's a a pre, it's a world without you know electricity, they still have a lot of concerns, spiritual and physical that are going on. And I think what I really like about medieval literature is it, it, when I read it, I feel like I'm transported back to that time. And I recognize myself in that literature. And I say, oh, wow, this is literature that like, yes, this may have been written 800 years ago, Mm -hmm. but the concerns are still the same of today. And so getting that, like dipping my toe in that way, really maybe want more. And the more that I kept reading and the more that I kept uncovering, I realized, wow, this is a field that has so much to offer. Um, and I had taken Latin all through high school. So I was like, hooray, I can use this skill yeah. that I already had, you know, <laughs> which was really helpful. Um, yeah. And so I think that's how I, I became an accidental medievalist, but now I wouldn't have it any other way.
0: You know what's so funny about how you mentioned that the problems of then are still the problems of today. This is something mm-hmm. that when I was an English teacher at a the high school that I was at before my current job, and mm-hmm. we would read something like Gilgamesh, and the mm-hmm. students were like, "Oh, why are we reading this story?" Which is like document be like one of the oldest stories ever discovered, and I'm like just wait till you read it because they're all afraid of dying. They're all afraid of pain and they're Mm. all afraid of emotional turmoil. That's what the whole thing is about. And guess what? Every single person that you know also has these same exact struggles. So connecting what seems to be ancient and far away in human history, we really haven't changed all that much despite the fact that we have all these other items and objects and technology around us, we still struggle with the same uh, sorts of m- emotional turmoils that we have for millennia.
1: Absolutely. And I think that like that Gilgamesh example is such a strong it's such a great one because part of what I love doing in medieval literature is I love like seeing, I love kind of tracing the echoes of medieval literature into the present. So I work on not just medieval literature, but also medievalism, the way that we kind of reinterpret the middle ages or use it for our own modern ends. And in a story like Gilgamesh, you can see, you know, traces of the flood myth. You can see kind of all these other stories that get picked up by other religions, other um, cultures and how they continue to disperse. And
2: yeah. that's something
1: I really love about medieval literature is Although compared to Gilgamesh, it's very recent. Yeah. <laughs> you can still like, see how these echoes or how these currents have become what they are today from this kind of origin
0: point. I love it. Well, I'm glad to talk about magic too on the show again, because, you know, I've had other scholars on here who focus on magic, Dr. Shaley Patel, Dr. Jason Josephson-Storm. And so being able to continue on in some of my, from some of my earlier episodes and continue my own learning in this topic is really fascinating because, you know, now I can pick on it with a certain time period with you through your lens as an English scholar as well, because um, Jason and uh, Shaley are within the world, like the Religious Studies spectrum. So this is a really fascinating direction that we're going to go. So let's go into your dissertation project that you're working on. Queer Magic, Sodomy, Sin and the Supernatural in the Later Middle Ages, um, which, you know, I I read a little bit about it discusses Mm -hmm. magic, gender and sexuality in the Middle Ages and early English Renaissance. And we're talking about 1100 to 1600. Is that about accurate for your time period? Absolutely. Okay, great. So this is a new topic for me and I'm wondering if you can mm-hmm. explain like the aim of your dissertation broadly. Like think about it if you were like coming in to talk to like my high school seniors and mm-hmm. I said, okay, Kirsty, explain to my students who are seniors in high school what your project is about. Tell me the goals and the aims of your dissertation project.
1: Absolutely. So although I'm in English, I work really interdisciplinarily. So I consider myself like, I guess, a medievalist as my foremost um, title, which I like to think encompasses like history, English, you know, all that sort of analysis. But I do definitely, am firmly grounded in literary theory as well. So with my dissertation project, I'm looking at those resonances that I mentioned in the way that people talk and think about magic. And I start in my project by looking at physical magical handbooks, like the way that they were um, theorized among philosophers and practitioners. And I moved to how that was transformed in imaginative spaces. So in that, I mean, like allegory, medieval romance, kind of stories about Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, for instance. And so each of my chapters tackles a different type of literature from the kind of nonfiction magical practitioner literature to the fictional. And sees what's going on with magic in each of those texts. And of course, as you've had other magic scholars, you you know that magic can be used for a bunch of different ends. Mm -hmm. But what I am arguing in my dissertation and the aim of my dissertation is to show how one aim that magic was used for, especially by medieval writers and thinkers, was to experiment with and imagine forms of sexual acts, gender power structures, gendered relationships, and kind of different types of bodies that would not have been perhaps accessible, acceptable, accessible, or illicit in the mainstream um, world. So literature, of course, is a space of imagination and play, and magic enables specifically queer, what I call queer, um, imaginations or queer envisionings of these bodies, relationships, etc. And Mm. it's important to note that in the Middle Ages, like high school seniors need to know this too. When I talk about queer, I don't mean the same thing necessarily that I mean today. Um, Scholars of religion will probably in medieval religion will probably know James Brundage. He's written an amazing book about, you know, sex in the medieval church. And he helps define, he's broken down, like, when is it acceptable to have sex and what type of sex is acceptable? Mm. And basically the only type of sex that is acceptable is heterosexual sex for reproduction, where the man is the active party, the woman is the passive party, and it doesn't happen on a holy day. Mm. Now, of course, to try to follow canon law is like trying to thread a needle. It's tricky. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people probably are violating that. But the fact of the matter remains that the church, which is the head form of government and spiritual guidance for all of the Western medieval Europe, that is their party line right that's what they're saying is the only acceptable forms of sex so for my project i'm really interested in sex acts and gender relationships that violate that idea these things that might have women who are extremely powerful and who maybe trick or deceive men for their own ends and yet instead of being criticized for it which would be you know what we would imagine would happen if they were brought before like a trial in real life they're instead they get away with it or they are celebrated for their deviation from the norm um, because I argue they have magic powers, right? Someone like Morgan Le Fay, who can practice magic and cause a whole bunch of nonsense to occur in Sir Gawain and the Geary Knight. Um, She flips the world on its head, including Camelot. And yet the story does not end with the condemnation of Morgan. It ends with sort of a celebration of her great genius and power. And Gawain is the weirdo who doesn't understand that she is like a special gifted woman. So that's a movie that's coming out next summer. If oh, wondering. nice. Yeah, that's, that's why I'm kind of dropping that one in. I know <laughs> we're a year away from it, but interested to see how the Green Knight takes the story. Yeah.
0: N- nice. Well, okay. So you mentioned several different types of texts here, basically Absolutely. like from like an instruction manual, almost it sounds like to mm-hmm. fiction and I'm wondering if you can like give me a couple of examples of what those might be so that people can get some titles in their head about things that you're based you're working on, you're working, working from.
1: Absolutely. So one of the tricky things for folks who are interested in studying medieval magic is that there are so many handbooks that are out there, but they have not been translated or edited. So some of the things that I'm working with are like an alchemical manuscript that we hold at UCLA that hasn't been edited. So I can say it's like called Rouse MS51 and you can look that up, but that will not be something that's super readable unless you have Latin. However, there are a couple of really exciting books that have been edited in recent years. And one big one is the Picatrix. This is one of the biggest magical grimoires of the middle ages. It came from the Arabic world and was translated first in um, Toledo and in medieval Spain, and then was transmitted from... Um, Spain to the rest of Western Europe and translated into Latin. And this is a text that you can find. There's a couple of different editions, there's a couple of different translations. So this is a great entry way and it's something that's referred to by constant other medieval sources. So it's clearly very widely known. And this is a magical instruction book that claims to be kind of following the rule of God. And that is a big thing in a lot of these instruction books, like the Picatrix. Um, another one is called the Sworn Book of Honorius, or in Engl- Latin, the Liber Uratus Honorii. And these are two handbooks that are really basing their cosmology in sort of Christian theology. They're saying, look, we're calling upon angels, we're calling upon um, the powers of God. And in fact, we're not violating God or trying to exceed God's power. We are simply using the secrets of nature that God has given us. To exploit. Now, if you compare that to some of my other sources, right? These are the magical handbooks. Let's think about the condemnations of magic. I'm reading a lot of theologians and philosophers. So, you know, one of the first people to really speak out against magic was Augustine of Hippo. He has a lot of screeds against it in the city of God, and he talks about it in Confessions. Uh, Thomas Aquinas also has a lot to say about it, and mm. it's none of it's good. Um, but in contrast to them, you have some theologians. Um, William of Auvergne is one and unfortunately most of his work has not been translated but he's one that is trying to find that who finds that think that there's a happy medium between magic and God's power that there's some way that they can coexist but he still says there are some things that magical practitioners do that are very bad so we have sort of the theological texts that are Very in line with canon law. I'm also looking at canon law, so like different penitentials and different ways of sort of um, penance manuals. I'm looking at to see what happens if you were someone who was accused of magic. What would happen to you? Right? Mm. We tend to think like, oh, you get burned at the stake or whatever, but that's really not a medieval um, issue. Really, it's you may be denied communication for a year. Excuse me, communion for a year. (laughs) You may need to, um, you know, commit some like large penance, but. You're not forever excommunicated. It seems like um, the curse is typically like, oh, you, you're you trying to know things you shouldn't. And, oh, sorry, go ahead.
0: No, go ahead. I'm I'm loving it.
1: Yeah. And then I'd say like, right, so I, I then look at literary sources. And so that's kind of a tricky term because as an English um, scholar, I kind of think everything's a literary source. But I would say that when I think of literary sources, what I'm talking about here are, you um, medieval literature is meant to entertain or instruct in some way. And so this would be something like the allegory, the complaint of nature by Alan of Lille, who was a 12th century French theologian. And he writes this, I would call it nature fan fiction, basically, Mm. um, about how he, it's, it's based off of Boethius's consolation philosophy. And it's he, Alan of Lille, one day runs into nature, who is sobbing and so upset because mankind, and especially men of the world, have ignored her decrees. They are becoming effeminate. They are having sex with other men. They are no longer delighting in the softness of women, but instead men are getting their pleasure from other men. And Venus through, and Venus is the cause of this. Nature says, in fact, it's the witchcraft or the magic of Venus that is making people act in this queer way. So- mm. That, of course, I read that text and I was like, lightning went off, right? I was like, (laughs) why is it that it's the magic of Venus? You know, Venus could do any sort of thing, right? It could just be her natural desirability. Why is it that her magic arts, as it makes very clear, are what is capable of sexualizing or queering um, men from their natural heterosexual desire?
0: Oh, my goodness. Well, you keep mentioning something that's really interesting to me as well Mm -hmm. about like the lack of translated works. Like, are you having to do a lot of personal translating yourself in (laughs) order to work with these texts?
1: Absolutely. And so that's part of what is taking the dissertation so long, I would say, is that I'm translating a lot of texts out of um, at UCLA I've been fortunate to learn Old French. So I've been working in some Old French texts. I work in Middle English. I work in Latin. And I'm hoping to work. I've taken some classes in Old Norse. And I'm hoping to have some parts of the dissertation, depending on fellowship applications, um, that would let me get to Iceland, do some research, and have a little bit of Norse in in the final project. But, yeah, a lot of it is me translating Latin. And medieval Latin is its own unique beast in that they don't really like, they remember some of the rules of classical Latin, but medieval Latin kind of creates its own rules. So I have been, it's, I've been playing around with like, word order doesn't matter. But neither do endings anymore. If you're someone who knows classical Latin, you may be like, oh, you know, it's it's easy. You follow the endings. You put them together. You can make a sentence come clearer. But with medieval Latin, it's a little bit like a puzzle. And mm. what makes matters worse is that magicians don't want people to know their knowledge. Magicians, right? They're trying to keep that knowledge secret so that if someone finds their instruction book, they're not gonna be like, wow, you are clearly in line with the devil. I must, you know, punish you. So the magical handbooks that I'm translating use really esoteric language they use a lot of language that doesn't really have a great translation in english or in modernity a lot of things that like plants and stuff that we don't really refer to anymore so a lot of it also has been tracking down these original um kind of sources and original um like materials that they would use for magical practice and trying to understand what those would look like
0: That is truly amazing. I mean, I I am a big fan. I don't really know any languages, but I love talking about them on the show. Like Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about an episode I did about the Havamal from Old Norse. And I had a scholar named Jackson Crawford on here and he was like reading from Old Norse, like on the podcast. I was like, this is so amazing. Like that stuff is so fascinating. And the fact that you're doing, having to do so much translating Mm -hmm. and that this is like a massive wealth of information in the Mm -hmm. world that will keep scholars busy for years to come, it sounds like.
1: Absolutely. And one book that came out that I highly recommend to anyone interested in this is The Routledge History of Medieval Magic. It came out in 2019. Oh, wow. And it is, before I had started working on my dissertation, before this book came out, I was hitting some dead ends because there's been a lot of work that's been done on magic, but only since the 90s, really. And it's hard to get it collected in one space. and really it kind of feels like a lot of scholars are out doing their own thing and not always talking to one another. So this volume is really exciting because it has 35 chapters that basically start from like, what are the origins of medieval magic to here are some practitioners to here are some texts, right? Here are how people are defining magic. And one of the complications that readers will find is that like, there is no one definition of magic. There is no one definition of what, you know, the supernatural or the preternatural looks like, but this book is a great, Um, guide kind of geared towards graduate students, folks, like they kind of assume that you're in academia, but I think it's still readable if you are not in academia and you're just interested Mm -hmm. in learning more about magic. I definitely recommend checking that out because it's kind of like a crash course of study in, you know, here's what you need to know the most essential information and here are the big debates going on in the field. So that is something that has been awesome, but it also has a lot of great, like every chapter ends with suggestions for future work right like this is what needs to be done and basically what needs to be done is everything (laughs) what needs to be done is keep translating and editing these volumes keep like uncovering them because although you know we at least i tend to think before i i got into this field like well we kind of have found all the medieval literature like we know what's out there we're done things are getting discovered in archives all the time especially like archives that just a lot of folks from um you know, Western Europe or America have kind of ignored or not spent a lot of time considering, or again, with more and more language knowledge, right? Like folks, I'm so glad that so many medievalists are studying Arabic now, because although that's not a language I have, there's so many incredible manuscripts in Arabic that can be translated and have such, so influenced Western thought. Yeah. I would say there's a lot of work to do, a lot of lifetimes of work to do, but (laughs) I'm just chipping away at my little area. I love
0: it. Okay. So I was watching a talk that you gave at a conference and a, war, a a term seems to guide a lot of what you do. And that term is contra naturum. Did I say that correctly?
1: Contra naturum, but close enough. Naturum. Absolutely.
0: Excellent. Yeah. Okay. I want to know about this term, what it means mm-hmm. and how it fits within your work, because we have these Keywords in the subtitle mm. of your dissertation, sodomy, sin, mm. and the supernatural, which seems to tie very closely into contranatorum. So I'm wondering Absolutely. if you can weave this thread for me and tie all this together.
1: Yes, that's that is the key term for my dissertation. So contra is a designation in canon law that is ascribed to acts that are against nature, literally what contra means. And these acts include sodomy incest, bestiality, masturbation. Basically, if you read Peter Damien's Liber Morianis, he has just, he goes through them all. Um, one thing that he doesn't talk about is like sex between women, but that's often parts because medieval people, especially like medieval male thinkers, didn't really imagine that that could be happening, right? They're not giving women a like a huge sex, bit of sexual agency anyway. So that wasn't a huge concern for them. Um, but these sins against nature are really fascinating. And as I've been doing my research, I've discovered, and that's part of what gets me so excited about this connection that I'm seeing between magic and gender, that magic was also considered The There were a lot of debates in the later middle ages talking about like, well, where does magic fit into the natural world? We know that, you know, God has created nature and everything in it. So that's good, but mankind can also do things that violate nature and that's bad. And so they're trying to kind of mark that line. And unfortunately for them, <laughs> that line is really unstable. It changes mm-hmm. a lot throughout medieval, um, history. And that, that line of what is, and what is not is fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Um, because that is, the fact that they are grouping these categories of sin together themselves, right? It's not like me, Kirsty, in the 21st century saying, these things sound interesting and the same. <laughs> it's that they themselves were thinking about magic and sodomy as kind of part of the same um, type of sin category. And that comes in part to what they think influences both of these categories. So for both Sodomites, and again, that means not just sodomy between men, but also incest, masturbation, bestiality. Um, They are driven to these acts, according to church theologians, because of the influence of demons. And this is something that kind of changes over the course of the Middle Ages. At the start of the Middle Ages, you have this very clear, well, at the start of the middle, ages, the start of the high middle ages where I get started. So we're at 1100. <laughs> I apologies to everyone who works in early medieval screaming at me right now. There are many more centuries, but when you get to, let's say the 12th century Renaissance or whatever, um, you see articulated this idea and it's in, uh, Peter Damon's Liber Gomorianus as well, where he says that the sodomites are made to sit in church or in, um, when they're excommunicated from church, but they can still go to services. They have to sit with the demoni- demoni- demoniacs, sorry, <laughs> the demoniacs, that's a word I've only read and haven't said, uh, The people who worship demons or are influenced or possessed by demons. So sodomy, you're only driven to that unnatural desire because of demons. Now, by the end of the Middle Ages, and again, and with a big asterisk, by the 15th, late 15th century, early 16th century, A book gets published that many people probably have heard of called the Malleus Maleficarum or the Hammer of Witches, right? Huge witch hunting guide. And that is not just a witch hunting guide, but it's also a lot of philosophy on how magic functions and why. And in that text, you see a major transformation from 1100 and from the Liber Gamorionis. The authors of the Malleus Maleficarum say sodomy is so unnatural that demons would not have anything to do with it, that Mm. demons are so horrified by that act that they would have no part in it. So this kind of transformation happens, yet there's still the connotation um, that demons and unnatural sex kind of go hand in hand. And at the same time in the Malleus and in earlier guides and condemnations of magic, you see um, magic being termed again, sins against nature and associated with demonic influence. I mentioned the Picatrix a little bit earlier and I mentioned how there's a lot of like invocations to angels in that text. Well, canon lawyers or folk canonists would have said, those aren't angels, those are demons and you're calling upon the forces of evil. So part of what is is tricky about understanding is that while there is a lot of stuff in the middle ages or a lot of things from the medieval period that resonate with us today, you kind of have to reconsider how the natural world is viewed and how it's hmm. viewed in a hierarchy in a religious hierarchy, right? Like you have this idea of free will among men, but yet God is still in control and has ordained everything. So you kind of see, I think in this debate about sort of magic gendered demons, a microcosm of the larger anxiety that medieval folks were feeling about their place in God's creation and how they know with, you know, out necessarily being trained in theology themselves, if they are on God's good side or God's bad side, right? How you navigate that weird, those tricky waters
0: is there like a hierarchy like a ranking of most bad to bad to least bad in like a medieval category of sinning is there like a ranking almost
1: yeah so it depends on the sin but there absolutely is and you can tell how things rank by looking at the punishments for them okay the most severe punishments and penitentials of course that means like you've done something really bad while if it's more like Okay, go and you know, no communion for a month, and then come back and think about it, right? Like you're like, okay, it was a sin, but it's not like I'm going to hell forever. And so I know I keep talking about the Book of Gomorrah, the Liber Gomorianus. That's because it's such a fascinating text, Peter Damian. It has been translated, so if folks want to read this very homophobic text, highly recommend. Mm. Um, It's it's fascinating, and he goes through and says, I'm going to break down all the forms of sodomy from the worst to the least bad, and in his view bestiality is well let's go from worst to best i guess (laughs) the worst is sodomy between two men because like penetration because that you've you've crossed a boundary that nature never meant for you to cross and it's worse to be the person being penetrated than the person who's doing the penetration Mm. because if you are the active participant and you are a man at least you are acting in the way that you are supposed to well if you are the passive participant and you are a man you are betraying your active sex as what Alan O'Leal calls it. You're, um, you know, acting like a woman, which is an additional bad thing, not just, you know, breaking these sex laws, but doing so effeminately. Then the next worst would be like mutual masturbation between folks. Sorry that I'm getting a little graphic. Then the next worst would be, um, and this is where it kind of gets weird because I, I don't understand quite his logic here, but mm-hmm. he's like, okay. Then what's bad is masturbation and spilling of seed that is not for procreation. Then he says, what's bad is bestiality, but it's not as bad. It's not as bad because animals aren't super smart. And so it's kind of like you're using a, a sex toy, if you will, um, that the animal, because it is not conscious in the way that humans are conscious. It is still a sin because you're violating that animal's purpose, but also mankind is supposed to have dominion over all the animals, so it's not as bad. And then the one that is weirdest to me is that incest, as long as it's heterosexual incest, is the least bad of all of the bad sins because although um, it violates the you know, blood ties and kinship laws, at least you are still acting A man and a woman, right? Like, at least there is still the active male and the passive woman participant. So, yes, you might, in my mind, I'm like, well, that's a huge violation. There's issues of consent, right? Like, we talk about now in our modern parlance of like, well, you know, maybe it would go the opposite way because, like, you know, you have sodomies between two consenting adults, while as you go in Peter Damien's like less and less bad sin pathway, you know, more and more you're violating others. But it's really about um if you are like how much you are violating that kind of canon law idea of the only proper way to have sex is this one way.
0: Yeah, like everything you just said, that that list of hierarchy, all it does is it makes me sad yeah. because I think about the centuries and centuries mm. of Uh, oppression and you know like violence within like domestic violence and like parental Mm -hmm. violence and like um violence against people who are outside the non non non-heteronormative like stand like like old like views of what was supposed to be standard and all i see is like centuries and centuries of pain caused against humans who aren't doing what canon law says they're supposed to do like it just feels like a manual for oppression
1: yeah and and that is what is so hard um because honestly like the best way to live in the middle ages if you really wanted to be godly would be to be chaste. chastity can kind of be considered its own form of sexuality i would say like because the idea is that like you know if you are chaste then you live like jesus who never had sex right and like angels who never had sex you are pre-original sin and yet that is a very high expectation to place on a society where you're also telling them to be fruitful and multiply right mm-hmm. so these kind of contradicting messages i think that like canon law was created in part as a way to kind of help make everyday life easier in that like okay this is what's okay this is what isn't okay right but unfortunately exactly as you say the rules became so stringent and so labyrinthine really that there's no way to not sin in sometimes right like if every almost every day is some sort of feast day for a saint when do you get to like be fruitful and multiply when it's not violating god's will Mm -hmm. so absolutely and and that is a real interest to me because even in the trump administration thinking a couple of years ago he was um which is nice to say (laughs) sorry um But was talking about, you know, bringing in natural law to govern um, kind of the political arena, he was saying, we need to go back to natural law. And whenever I see natural law, that to me is a big like a dissertation, but also a big red flag. Because as my dissertation is kind of demonstrating to me, natural law is a concept that, although, as my advisor put it, like we can, we can't go through walls, right, there are clearly laws of nature that, you know, bound us, a lot of times, natural law is in fact law that humans have created and have said is natural because it fits, you know, whatever their personal worldview is at the time. And what my what these texts are showing, especially by looking at like the different ways that people are grappling with what is natural and what's unnatural, it shows this idea of natural law is unstable and is in many ways socially constructed. A lot of what we right, like the hierarchy of sin nowhere in the bible do you like you sit down and you read and you say okay incest less bad one than less. two right? three <laughs> exactly but like the idea that you know incest is more natural than sodomy that is absolutely coming from you know church theologians and and influential writers and thinkers kind of codifying natural law in their own context.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay, so what I want to know now is so we have these sins mm-hmm. that you're that you've been discussing, you know, sin, uh, magic, non-procreative sex, etc. Who is policing this? How is this being policed and how are people being punished um, you know, in some of the variety of punishments that were most likely meted out?
1: This is a great question because it's going to kind of surprise you that the people who are supposed to be doing the punishing are also the people who are doing most of the practice themselves. Oh, that is
0: fascinating. About
1: magic. And when we talk about sort of of clerical sodomy. So of course, the people who are rooting out and who are kind of talking about how magic is bad the most are um, clerics. They're especially the upper levels of the medieval church. And so when I say the medieval church, I mean, what we now call the medieval Catholic church, but at that time there was one church. So that's just what I'm talking about. Um, and the medieval church was trying to figure out, you know, what elements of what we would consider to be magic, like maybe some forms of divination or some forms of like, you know, if you're using, um, like the stars to tell the future is that a sin because you're just kind of reading what God has put in the sky. Right. Versus if you're saying like, ah, angel Mephisto, will you come and tell me what is going to happen next week? Right. Like (laughs) there you're calling upon a demon to intervene. And as the middle ages goes on, as we kind of move from what I would call the high middle ages of the 12th and 13th centuries to like the 14th century, um, the church gets more and more clear in their condemnations of magic because part of the the issue that's at stake here um is that at first it's not an issue at all pre uh 11th century a lot of these magical handbooks are not getting translated or circulating around western europe you have a lot of like folk traditional magic but that's circulating more in like small communities that's not like the picatrix or whatever is claiming to be like here's a big handbook that's being spread across europe right but once um this huge movement called the Translatio movement still happens in the high middle ages, which is known as the translation movement. Um, It's this process where knowledge that has been preserved from antiquity, from classical Greece and Rome, has been saved thanks to the work of Arabic translators. They have translated all these works into Arabic and then their works are getting picked up and translated into Latin by monks and other clerics in the western middle medieval world and so all of a sudden there's this new literature that and then by all of a sudden i mean over the period of like 200 years but compared to what happened immediately before mm-hmm. all of a sudden there's this new type of knowledge circulating and so the church sees this of course as a threat to its authority because in some ways it very much is um and need to kind of figure out what is right and wrong however at the same time the major practitioners of magic are clerics themselves um a huge scholar of medieval magic richard kikifer who has written an awesome book called magic in the middle ages that's a very handy primer if you're looking for like the most like the most reader friendly introduction i would say that's mm-hmm. a great one um he calls it a clerical underworld of magicians that basically because to practice magic, you need to know Latin to some degree, because most everything's in Latin. You need to know the proper way to say prayers. You need to know the proper way to kind of prepare holy water and things of that nature, right? You have to be able to get your hands on a lot of things like holy water or consecrated communion wafers to do things. Um, That the people who are practicing magic are the same ones who are supposed to be rooting it out. And This is, of course, a major problem. You see, um, that is what the Book of Gomorrah is written about, is the problem that clerics are supposed to be the ones who are policing sodomy, and yet they're the ones who are engaging in it. And so this is sort of a call to arms by Peter Damien to um, the medieval church. He's sending it to the Pope to say, like, look, we are the problem that we are supposed to be fixing. We need to do something. And the same thing happens, but not to the same stringent effect in regards to magic because while magic is very dangerous because it challenges God's authority and thus like makes, you know, if, if God's authority can be challenged and yet God is in charge of everything, what does that really say about society? Right. It's, it really is pushing at the building blocks of medieval understanding mm-hmm. It's challenging those building blocks. Um, and yet at the same time, it is very useful. Like kings have magicians uh the picatrix that magical handbook i've talked about was translated at the court of king alphonse like he ordered the translation because he wanted to know more about this magical stuff frederick ii of sicily always had magicians and his court was a big place for astrological work for divination um to circulate so while you have again like if i went to confession right to my local priest and i said hey i I've been reading this cool book called the Picatrix and I decided to try some spells. You know, he would say, "Uh uh-uh, bad, you know, (laughs) like you got to, um, your penance could range from kind of examples I was giving earlier. Your penance could range from, okay, you have to sit with the um, demon worshipers in church or like in the churchyard, and you have to kind of contemplate and, and fast for several months before you can be welcomed back in the fold. To the extreme of excommunication, to the extreme of being burned at the stake, because there were still magicians that, that reached that fate that wasn't really until the fifteenth century. Um, you know, that's kind of how it would happen, right? But then again, I could just go to confession and not tell the priest that I have created this magic potion <laughs> or whatever, and what can he do? Some of the issue really comes up when, um, for example, oh my goodness, so I mentioned William of O'Vern, who was bishop of paris um, in the 13th century and he wrote um on the universe which is a a really helpful text but again hasn't really been translated um after his death because they found books that weren't just like theology books but they found books that were like somewhat magical instruction book-esque um a huge myth got kind of passed around a legend got passed around that he was himself a magician. And that happens to a lot of the big medieval writers and thinkers like Roger Bacon, who um, Scott, like listeners may know as a huge medieval theologian, philosopher. He was a Franciscan monk. Um, He was also accused after he died of being a magician, of being an alchemist, of being Mm. someone who, who pushes the boundaries of nature, even as his own work is trying to reconcile God's authority and the natural world. So yeah, it's a sort of double edged sword where, the policemen are supposed to be um, the clerics, and yet they themselves are continually associated with magic um, because of their own interests.
0: You know, who, uh, a figure that I'm really curious about. You've mentioned some other people, like we mm-hmm. some na- a lot of names have come up. But I was watching your talk, one of your mm-hmm. talks that you sent me, and the Apostle Paul comes up, mm-hmm. and you also mentioned the the early church just a few minutes absolutely. ago. And I really want to know about how Paul ties in with the work that you do, because I, I get the impression that this is important stuff too, that people should know.
1: Oh, absolutely. And so Paul has a lot to say about um, the role of kind of marriage, right? Paul talks a lot about that. in in his letters, he also talks about um, the Boundaries of kind of, of sodomy and, you know, appropriate sex. And this is something, I mean, Paul is where the church draws a lot of their authority from on these issues. And it's something that like folks today draw their authority from on these issues. When yeah. I, you know, I am engaged to a great woman and her, um, she's from a very, you know, religious family. And so when I was talking to her parents, they're like, well, how can you, how can you both be Christian, because that's how I identify, and also be? a lesbian, right? Like, how do you find that? Okay. And I I was talking about, well, you know, Christ doesn't say anything in the scripture about sodomy. It's Paul. Right. Mm. And even in 2021, they were like, well, that's, that's the, that's the word, you know, like Paul has said this, we need to follow Paul. So Paul's theorizations and talking about, um, kind of talking about sodomy really lays the foundation for later church thinkers. He's picked up by Jerome, another church father who really kind of, takes his works, um, John Chrysostom takes them to like the extreme, basically these early church fathers are the ones who are really hammering out these ideas of okay, okay, if it's better to be married than to burn, as Paul says, right, if like that is better, um, it's better to be married than to burn, that means it's better to get married and have acceptable church sanctioned sex than it is to sin outside of wedlock, um, that's when you know jerome and john christian straight well wait doesn't that mean that it's no matter what it's better to be chaste?" so a minute ago when i mentioned that chastity could be kind of seen as a sexuality in the middle ages um that's coming out of this idea right this idea that the purest way to be thanks to what's kind of hinted at in paul and then what is um, uncovered through exegesis by later church fathers becomes very much this this hard and fast rule of like this is actually what natural law is And it comes back again to this this issue I mentioned earlier on where you're making these claims about acts being in line with kind of innate laws of nature. And yet this whole progression from Paul through Jerome, through John Chrysostom and Aquinas to Augustine, you know, uh, sorry, sorry, through to Augustine, through Augustine to Aquinas, pardon me. Um, You can see how these ideas are not set in stone, how each church father is kind of picking up where the last one left off and furthering through their analysis, the limits of what must be acceptable and what isn't acceptable, but mm. it really does. It all goes back to, um, to those gospels, to the story of the witch of Endor. That's what a lot of people draw upon, uh, in the middle ages is like, well, this is why witches are bad. Um, the condemnations in Deuteronomy against magicians, that's a huge place that people go to. Um, because at the end of the day, right? Like, if you have the religious text for the medieval church that clearly outlines these things as wrong, theologians are—that's their clear um, backup, right? Mm. That's their—that's their proof.
0: Amazing. Okay. Well, something a, a little more fun that I want to know. But maybe it's not fun. Maybe this will lead <laughs> to a total despair for you. Tell oh, me about archival work and like what your life is like when oh you are looking into these things which are so old at this point mm-hmm. that like there's got to be so much challenge here. I want to know about what is hard about your research, mm-hmm. what you do for archival work, if you travel anywhere, tell me some stories about yeah. learning about all this for you, what you have to do and go through to get all this.
1: Absolutely. So the archive because nothing or nothing, but because not many things are translated, the archive is my bread and butter. Um where I've, I've got to go for most of my project to to get more evidence so a lot of times you know I think people have this great idea of archival research like you go you you know know what books you want to see you pull them out and then if they have this stuff cool if they don't you move on but really especially with a lot of these texts you have no idea what books you need to see because they haven't been categorized they haven't really been analyzed no one's made a table of contents it's like this manuscript has XYz so for example, um, I've done, done a fair bit of international travel to, to do this research. I spent um, one semester a couple of years ago where I lived for a month in Paris and worked at the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. And then I lived in two months for two months in London and I worked at the Wellcome Institute Library. I worked at the Bodleian at Oxford. I worked, I went to different archives in Cambridge, and I worked at the British Library. Um, and you know, these libraries, first of all, to, to even get in, you have to go through a screening process. Where I had to bring a letter from a faculty member who said, "Kirsty has been trained in paleography, which is the study of handwriting, and in codicology, the study of manuscripts." Which is true. I had taken intensive classes in graduate school, so I could accurately work with these manuscripts. Um, so you know. I vouched for her, let her in. I then had to prove, right, my American residency. You have to bring a lot of paperwork in. First day when you go to the archive is just paperwork. Then, you know, you go and you say, okay, this manuscript, like one story from like this manuscript maybe has been talked about and this story has to do with magic. Let me pull that whole manuscript and see if there's anything else in there that deals with magic or for instance, at the Bodleian, they have a collection known as the Ashmole Collection from Elias Ashmole, who was a book collector of the occult and of alchemy. And so when he died, he gave his whole library to the Bodleian at Oxford. And although all of his works have not been you know, thoroughly categorized, I knew that, okay, I would look at you know Ashmole manuscripts 30 through 50 because they're in the genre that I'm interested in and maybe something is useful. Now, sometimes it's going to be really exciting. I did an archival trip over the summer um, a year before I did this big fall trip. And on that trip, I found this really cool um, alchemical allegory poem that has to do it basically is kind of a, it takes up the complaint of nature that Alan of Leal wrote. And 400 years later, it writes it from the point of view of an alchemist and of nature's response to the alchemist. So it's like a dialogue between nature and the alchemist about how they're using. Um, you know, natural law, right? And that's fascinating. That's going to be in my final chapter. That's going to be an amazing bookend. And I would have only, the only way I found that was by going page by page through manuscripts and looking at titles and trying to see if there's anything of interest. But a lot of times folks handwriting is horrible and you can only make out one out of every 10 words. Um, so it's a lot of a lot of puzzle work. So sometimes it can be really exciting, right? Like that's one really exciting example. Um, another thing that's been pretty exciting is at UCLA, I mentioned that manuscript MS51. In my first year in that paleography class, that class that taught me how to work with manuscripts, we were told to find a manuscript on campus and to um, you know, edit it, which was a big task. It was a, it was really stressful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I found an alchemical instruction book at UCLA that was in Latin. And I was like, oh my gosh, I know Latin, let me translate this. And that really opened a lot of doors to realize like that the archive is so exciting. However, the archive can also be soul-crushing. Mm-hmm. So I how I spent that really long fall trip in Europe. I mean, that took me like four months of archival research, and I came out with very little of use. A lot of things I wasn't able to see because I wanted to check manuscript. I wanted to check the words of certain manuscripts, like um, Cotton Nero A10, the famous manuscript that holds Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. But that's on display in the British Library's treasure vault, and they are not going to just let Kirsty Francis take a look at that. Um, One romance I work on is from the 12th century, and so I was at the Bibliothèque Nationale, and I tried for three weeks to see just one manuscript, and unfortunately it was too old. They said it is in such bad condition, and it's been checked out more than once a year already, that it has deteriorated to the point that, you know, we need to keep preserving it. So I wasn't able to see that. Basically, I spent, you know, a good four months trying to translate and research, and I left kind of with hardly any i mean it's kind of disappointing to say that like i left that trip with less than it wasn't less than i had even going in because i was going in with the hope that i was going to find xyz and there just wasn't there and so that issue is not so much that like there isn't the data there the issue is that the archives are in many ways very impenetrable because they haven't been categorized that like I could be in there for another two years and maybe then I would find exactly what I'm looking for, but I have to be the one who sift through all the sand myself.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness.
1: Yeah. It's exciting, right? It can be really fun when you're that person who's like finding something brand new and you're like, oh my gosh, check this out. Like this is going to blow my whole thing wide open. But after that last trip, I was like, okay, I, I had to kind of face facts and be like, well, what I hoped would be this like really exciting research trip instead of coming back with kind of my hat in my hand saying, well, I confirmed my suspicions, but I didn't learn anything new, you know? And so that that's kind of the look of the draw sometimes.
0: My goodness. Um, okay. Well, I know, yeah, that was something that was really interesting to me because like, mm-hmm. think about how long it takes just to read these things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a slow reader. And one of the reasons that I personally abandoned graduate studies, like just before Mm -hmm. comprehensive exams Mm -hmm. is because I couldn't physically consume the material fast enough to where I felt that I was ever going to be an efficient scholar. So Mm -hmm. I was like out, right? Yeah. And it was just something that I did just for myself because I knew that like, okay, this is a serious limitation that I have as Mm -hmm. far as like Attention span, reading speed, comprehension, and I just don't have the ability to have the endurance on that. So that's why I do projects like this because I'm super curious about things like this, Mm -hmm. but I just don't have the personal intensity or uh, ability To Mm -hmm. to do what you've done. So to like go into a multi-week research trip and come out having nothing. I mean, it's (laughs) it's gotta be so difficult, but it's also so amazing because of the perseverance that it takes to continue going back. And like you gotta like love this. Do you know what I mean? Like you have to love it.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I was recently diagnosed while I was in grad school with ADHD, which I kind of discovered I mean looking back now I'm like oh obviously but like it really hit me after I passed those comprehensive exams and I was at the dissertation point and all of a sudden I was the one motivating myself and I realized that ADHD has been both my curse and my superpower in that it gives me that hyper focus right like I because I'm interested in magic and gender I'm like when it's related to my research I can buckle in and like hone in but if it is you know i apologize to folks on this podcast who really love saints lives or ha- hagiographies i know that they're such a rich source and so helpful but it is not something that like i can just lock and load and read for hours on end right like mm-hmm. when it's something i'm not interested in it's just hard to it's hard to stay focused and it's it's really tough because academia is very much you know kind of a an individual work zone you're not collaborating that much and it's a lot of you know, you're working in an archive alone on end. Good luck. No one's holding you accountable except for yourself. So yeah, it's definitely a a challenge. Um absolutely.
0: absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, something that I'm really wondering about is I want to tie this into modern day society, right? Yeah, totally. So something I'm really curious about is how scholars who work on topics that are so far outside of what people in 2021 would recognize as modern or contemporary. Mm-hmm how you explain the way that these very old topics are important now. So like, I love hearing questions about mm-hmm. this. So why do you think that people now should mm-hmm. care about these lessons that are found within these very old topics that you are talking about? What is the relevance for the here and now?
1: Absolutely. Well, like I just mentioned that natural law has still been proposed as recently as last year as mm. the basis for our legal system, right? Like that this idea of natural law that is inherently Christian, like that is the subtext of that statement, um, is is the basis of, of what we should do. And, you know, you hear that term, and if you don't know anything about natural law, it sounds like, oh, yeah, the law's of nature. That seems innocuous enough, yeah. right? But by looking at history, for instance, you can see how when natural law and as we talked about with canon law right when that understanding rules everything it leads to as you said oppression and pain for folks right it leads Mm to um a world that is less accepting and less um, inviting for different types of bodies and races and people and experimentation right so that's one big thing that i hope that people people realize Um, my dissertation starts actually with Um, in 1992 pat robertson who is from where i'm from virginia so someone i really listened i mean i knew a lot about when i was growing up pat robertson Mm -hmm. he has a, a speech from 92 for a fundraising letter where he's like feminism will lead women to become lesbians to kill their husbands destroy their families and become witches and just like the way that even today we draw these parallels we say you know, okay, I know that was 92. That's not quite today. It's
0: sure. I mean, no, it. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, that is not yeah. long ago at all,
1: right? The way that these things are still influencing our discourse and still influencing our understandings. Um, You know, when we talk about concepts like traditional marriage, right, or traditional family values, those are things that were first codified in the middle ages. And I think it's important for folks who have no concept of the of the middle ages and no concept of how um, these things were kind of arbitrated or, or kind of, hierarchized hierarch- in the Middle Ages. They think that what is being promoted today is just in keeping with that. But as we know, right? Like, as these definitions of what is good and bad sex tell us, right? Like today, we, you know, we would not use the same <laughs> hierarchy system that Peter Damian uses in Liber gamorianus to like judge people of sex crimes, right? Right. Um, that these laws or these concepts that are static or that we treat as static and essential are in fact constantly in flux. And we need to recognize before we like make similar, you know, as people say, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it, right? Before we make similar mistakes or before we um, kind of forget this legacy. Because I think also today people were really dismissive of kind of the idea of the supernatural. We think of it as a fiction, but magic is just one way of understanding the unknown like we all agree that that gravity is real Mm -hmm. but we still don't really understand how it works like scientists have not yet proven exactly how gravity functions even though we know it's real we know it exists we know it um controls things around us and i would say that for medieval folks magic was much the same right it's the unexplainable phenomena that clearly, you know, they can point to and say, well, something made this cow be born with two heads or (laughs) something made this man impotent or whatever. And magic becomes kind of a way to rationalize and understand that. And I just think that the way that people think and talk about magic is really revealing as sort of the precursor for our modern understandings of like experimentation and practical knowledge because they're doing the same sort of things that modern day scientists do right a lot of these instruction books are okay i've tried xyz and they're following these recipes and you know you can see resonances of chemistry things like that um yeah so i think that the big thing that i that i hope people in modernity take away is that a these debates have been going on forever b these debates have always like made room for or um both acknowledged as they try to dismiss these non-normative bodies and genders right like people wouldn't be concerned about sodomy in the middle ages unless sodomy was happening
2: mm-hmm. you know it's
1: not like some imagined thing um i know that in you know in the field of history and the field of religious studies there are a lot of questions about like you know were gay people Did they exist in the past? Right. And I think that, like, you know, I think it's very fair when people feel like, well, can we even apply the term homosexual to the past? Sure, that is absolutely perhaps anachronistic. We need to talk about that. We need to figure that out. But there is clear evidence in my work that, like, people were engaging in same sex relations, whether they consider themselves gay or not. People were making that a major part of their life enough that it was a huge problem for the church. And that there is a clear connection in. Medieval imagination between these sodomitical acts and magical practices. And that's what, you know, I hope that folks realize that these things are not disparate ideas, but in fact, they're an intertwined legacy that continues to shape our modernity
0: you need to write all of these things in the atlantic and like mm-hmm. the new york times magazine this is exciting but i know that you have other things that you've worked on too other projects mm-hmm. like i know you've worked with the andrew w mellon foundation mm-hmm. um you know the natural science foundation national mm-hmm. science foundation los angeles review of books and more. And, you know, I'm wondering if you have any other projects that you've worked on that you would like to promote to listeners out there um, because the dissertation is still, you know, being worked on. Absolutely. I'm wondering if you have any any other stuff you'd like to direct our listeners to who might want to check out some of these things that you've worked on over the years.
1: Absolutely. So I have been working, as I mentioned, on alchemy um, quite a bit recently. It was something I didn't really think about until I did that first project as a graduate student when I discovered that, or when I kind of translated that alchemical manuscript. And that has been huge because alchemy is in the medieval consciousness related to magic, but still very different from, right? They're they're not one of the same. Um, And so that's been a really fascinating project. And I've looked at the way, again, I've been talking about discourse a lot. I looked at the discourse of alchemy and how it kind of contributes to this idea of an alchemical identity. Um, and how in the middle ages, this identity of what it means to be an alchemist and what that means. And I argue is to be specifically like learned, righteous and male, right? That is what you must be to be a good alchemist Um, that they codify this in the way they even just like talk about their practices. So I have an article coming out later this year, it'll be online in medieval feminist forum. And that article details, you know, what is going on in kind of the discourse of alchemy and these questions of sort of male power structures. Another thing that I'm working on that I'm pretty excited about is coming out this year. And I mentioned earlier that I work on medievalism, the way that we in modernity pick up on the Middle Ages. And going back to the archive, I um, have a piece coming out. It's called, my the piece is called Fetishizing the Past, but it's in a collection called Painful Pleasures, so, you know, masochism in the middle ages that's coming out from the university of manchester press this year edited by chris Vicaro. and i'm arguing in there that the middle ages functions in modern bdsm subculture as kind of this idea of the origin of bdsm mm-hmm. and that in our modern consciousness we constantly associate medieval like medieval torture right we're like um oh, middle ages <laughs> they tortured people and they were really into pain Um, Not necessarily true, but we have (laughs) picked up on that and made it into a legend about the Middle Ages that we use to justify our own sexual acts today. (laughs) So that's like something that's really cool. And for that work, I actually got to discover um, there's this huge archive of what is basically porn at UCLA that someone donated (laughs) in the 70s that has never been touched. And I was going through these documents and like, it's just constant, right? you know, you have side by side with like erotic images, like clips from, um, you know, photos from like a Robin Hood movie that have been stapled in, you know, and the question I had to ask myself was like, why is it that like this random, you know, Errol Flynn Robin Hood movie, like gets added into like the middle of, you know, your kind of personal pornography collection? Like, what is it that that is how that relates? And so for me, it comes back again to how we deploy the understanding of the middle ages in our sort of modern and by modern, I mean 20th century, because this is all from like the fifties through seventies, but um, our modern understandings of kind of sexuality and self-fashioning. And so those are two things, like they both deal with sexuality. They both deal with the middle ages, but they're very different in what they talk about. Uh, One is dealing with alchemy. The other one's dealing with BDSM and looking at texts like Chaucer's Troilus and Crusade to say like, we have always, not just in modernity, but even in the past, we have used the tension between past and present to justify kind of what happens in modernity. You know, Mm -hmm. whether that modernity is when we're, you know, Chaucer in 1400 in our modern time, we say, yeah, it's fine for us to, um, condemn Crusade, you know, for being a hussy (laughs) or whatever. And in, uh, you know, 21st century time to say like, oh, well, you know, this, we're participating in a sexual legacy that goes back to the early middle ages, right? Whatever these concepts are, they're pretty fun
0: amazing well Kirsty, i'm so delighted with this conversation like the amount of ground that we've been able to cover in an hour thank is you. really astounding to me <laughs> um and you know i'm wondering if like i'd imagine some people want to follow you can you say oh, where you. people can find you um if they'd yes. like to follow your your work your commentary like what are some places that you would direct people to if they want to get in touch or follow your work
1: amazing well i Always, I'm looking for new folks on Twitter to hang out with. So mm-hmm. you can find me on Twitter at Kirstie, K E R S T I, Francis, F R A N C I S, all one word. You can also go to KirstieFrancis.com and see links to kind of the writing that I've been doing. You can also find my academia.edu page. Mm-hmm. Um, if you just Google Francis UCLA, it should come right up. And there you can have, um, as soon as these other articles come out, I'm going to upload them. You can see my book reviews that I've already written on issues like magic and um, judaism in magic and franciscans in the middle ages i have some book reviews on that that might be of interest to folks um those are all uploaded to my academia page thank you so much
0: Kirstie francis it's been a real pleasure to have you on thank you so much for coming on classical ideas
1: thank you so much for having me this has been a real delight